Hello, everybody. Welcome into Sports Day Insider, provided by the Dallas Morning News. I am Kevin Sherrington, joined today by David Moore. Hello, David. Hello, Kevin. It's good seeing you yesterday. We had a nice little chat about the process of writing. I thought we would use the next 35 minutes of this podcast to just talk about the process of writing. Not about <laughs> not about anything specifically about what we've written, just the process and how we go about it. I, th- I think the listeners will find that fascinating. Yeah, you? It, it, they found that really fascinating. It's like watching <laughs> watching sausage being made. Uh, I don't think they I don't think they want to hear anything about that. Uh, although I did I will just say that I like listening to uh, Brazilian music when I'm writing. So that that helps. The Portuguese helps. I don't I don't have to concentrate on that's it. Uh, and then Evan Grant. Hello Evan. Are you shaking your head? I yeah, I don't know about the samba music that you're listening to when you write, but whatever. Yeah, I, Evan I, gets a Brazilian wax when he writes. I think. No, I, I, different... when I write, I have to have a bowl of salty snacks nearby. Oh my gosh! In particular, is, is it always nuts, or are you pretzels, or what do you lean toward? Uh, it's, no, it's Evan's often, nuts, no question about it. It's often pretzels. A lot of times, it becomes Chex Mix or whatever is available at the convenience store, at which I've stopped uh, on the way home. Very healthy stuff. Very spicy healthy. or just salty? Do you like the spicy, salty mix or strictly the salt? Uh, I'm more salt and sweet when it comes to writing. Yeah. Need that balance okay. there. That's fascinating, fellas. Okay, uh, let's uh, let's move on now. <laughs> Something that somebody might be or, interested in. For the two uh, listeners who have not dropped out at this yeah, point. Yeah, no kidding. Uh, so the, the Cowboys roared back uh, with a win over the Falcons. After they put up their with best game of the season. After their absolute worst game of the season, quite a turnaround for the guys, uh, and so we give them all due credit for that. I I have to say this was the first game that I've covered the Cowboys this season. They were all wins, all the ones I covered, and the first one I didn't complain about it. Uh, so this was, uh, I thought, a big step up for them in pretty much all facets. Don't you think, David? Yeah, I think we were complaining that why didn't this happen on a 7.20 call game start rather than noon, uh, so we could start riding a little bit earlier. But again, that's about the process, and no one really cares about that other than us. But no, this was, you know, and we talked about it last week on the podcast. If you looked at it strictly within this season and didn't carry over any emotional baggage from the years of Cowboys failures that have unfolded before – you would say that what happened against Denver was an aberration. That it was just one of those games over the course of a season, and sometimes you have more than one, that you just shake your head as an outlier and you go, well, it's not really reflective of what this team is about and how it goes about its business. But I would argue other than the opener, uh, there was probably more anticipation of what was this team going to look like come going against Atlanta and at any other time than opening the season against Tampa Bay, uh, because that game was so uncharacteristic in that loss to Denver. And uh, you just saw from the start, I mean, they dominated that game from start to finish in all three phases in, in a way they have rarely done in recent years. And, and I went back and looked at it and, uh, you know, 40 point wins are rare. I think we all know that. But, you know, in today's NFL, 20 point victories are rare. And you go back to December of last season, the Cowboys have won in their last 13 games. They've won five of those 13 games by 20 or more points. And so I think you're seeing with this group, and you actually saw it 
begin to develop at the in December of last season that they're they're displaying a killer instinct at, at parts of the game where they can put it away. They are keeping the the foot on the accelerator and putting teams away in a way these Cowboys teams have not been able to do or just strategically weren't built to do in previous years. Yeah, I didn't think this was necessarily a bounce back game from the perspective that they had to win to beat the Falcons to, to, to make a statement because I thought, again, the Falcons are an, are an awful team. I know they had beaten New Orleans the week before and I knew they came in four and four, but it was an awful four and four team. What I did think was most impressive was, as you said, you know, coming out, stepping on the gas pedal from the very start and never letting up. Um, I think you guys were both at the game, so I guess you – I don't know if you saw this stat, but um, at halftime, the lead uh, the lead at halftime was, what, 35 to – 36 to 3, right? 36 to 3, yeah. Mm-hmm. And that was the Cowboys' biggest halftime margin since 1971? Yeah, and the 29 points scored in the second quarter was their lo- most explosive quarter in franchise history. So I, I thought that made a statement, the statement that, hey, w- we are going to come out and not just – not just beat a team that we that we should be. We're going to dominate this team, and like you guys said, in every phase, because there was the there was the block punt, there was the execution on when you got the break on the on the two point conversion, all of that stuff. I think everything that the Cowboys needed to do this week, um, they did in in, in a resounding manner. Um, but I think Kevin, you would probably say that all of that is is great. It's the next twelve days that are going to be so important for this team. Yeah, it is. Uh, you know, I, I did think it was important that they uh, come out and establish how good they were going to be. I thought the thing that was, was striking to me in this game, uh, the number of things, but they played well on defense. They got three turnovers again, uh, three interceptions, and that was obviously very big. But, and that had been characteristic of what they'd done before the, the loss to Denver. But I thought that the defense just played well overall. It was a very sound, fundamental defense. They shut down uh, the Falcons, you know, and, and I think that, you know, uh, and Evans right that Falcons aren't a really good team, but Matt Ryan is still a pretty good quarterback. He's coming off an offensive player of the week uh, performance against the Saints. Uh, they made they Matt right they made Matt Ryan look bad in that game, uh, and I think that that was uh, a testament to the fact that they didn't have Randy Gregory. Uh, that they still don't have Demarcus Lawrence, and yet they got a lot of pressure on him and rattled him. I thought so. I thought that was overall a very good performance. So. Moving forward, they got three games in the next 12 days at Kansas City, home against the Raiders on Thanksgiving, and then uh, at New Orleans uh, on a Thursday night. So uh, this is, I believe, the toughest three-game stretch of the season for the Cowboys, uh, playing some teams. We see the Chiefs have struggled all year, of course, until the week before they play the Cowboys. They put it back together again, look very much like the Chiefs are supposed to look. Uh, this will be a very difficult game for yep. the Cowboys. But, but you want that, don't you? I mean, just just if yeah, you're a test. fan watching this game, you you want the sense that Kansas City has fought its way back. And one, I'm not so sure they have. Uh, you know, beating uh, a, a Vegas team that's had some issues here of late uh, in a division game is a little bit different than beating a, an opponent in another conference that's playing the, the level the Cowboys are. But – you know, from a fan standpoint and, and from a media standpoint, too, I, I want to see Kansas City playing well in this game because isn't that, a, isn't that the best gauge you can get of where this Cowboys team is? 
going Absolutely. in there, uh, playing. Well, the, yeah. This is, yeah, this is what I've said is uh, uh, this week is that this is the game that is this should be a playoff primer for you. You should be no looking question. at this game like that. This is a playoff game. This is who the Cowboys are, are angling toward. This is what you want to see. For there are still people out there who'll say, "Oh, they haven't beaten anybody," which you know I I, I disagree with that. I think that you know it, it certainly there is a a, a steep drop off after the top teams in the NFC. There's no question about that. Uh, so let's look at what uh, the schedules are left for for the rest of the contenders in the NFC. First of all, we we if you look at the website Tankathon, they have listed the strength of schedules for the for the uh, the rest of the season. And uh, coming in at number seven, the Rams, uh, the rest of their opponents have a 538 winning percentage. They've still got games left against the Packers, Cardinals, and Ravens. That's going to be very tough uh, for the Rams, who have lost two games in a row now, and uh, they're off this week. That's going to be that would be really hard for me if I'm a, if I'm a player for the Ram. You're coming off a two game losing streak, and you're going to have to sit on that for another week uh, because of the off week. Uh, so they've started to show some cracks uh, a little bit. Uh, uh, you know, Matthew Stafford has kind of struggled a little bit. He threw two first quarter interceptions uh, in the last two weeks. Uh, and he did this week. I, one of those was a, a play in which Odell Beckham might've run the wrong route. And that was kind of uh, left uh, uh, Matt hanging on that one. But uh, that is a tough schedule for the Rams here on out for the other teams that are contenders in the uh, NFC for the best record. Uh, you got the, the Cowboys at uh, their 18th, 493 percentage for the, the, the uh, teams they have left. Uh, then you, you move down, and then the, the rest of the group uh, has a, a lot easier road. Tampa Bay, 467. They've got games left against the Bills, Saints, Colts, and two against the Panthers if you want to consider those tough games. I'm not sure that I would really want to do that. Uh, and then uh, Green Bay, 454 percentage. They've got games left against the Rams, Ravens, and Browns. Browns are really starting to struggle. I don't know how tough that is either. You never can tell with some of those teams. So do we think that the Cowboys at this point have a realistic shot at the top seed than in the NFC? Well, they do. And and I think these three games in 12 days, once the clock starts uh, this Sunday in Kansas City, uh, will indicate that. Uh, I think if Dallas Dallas goes two and one in that stretch – I think they position themselves to to still be in contention for the number one seed in the NFC. If they go one and two, which would not be disastrous and, and would not indicate they could not still be a force in the playoffs, given uh, the competition and the fact that, uh, you know, two of those games are on the road, one in Kansas City and the other in New Orleans, two very difficult places to play. Uh, I, I think their chances of doing that are a little less unless they run the table after that. So I, I think Dallas is definitely in the mix. And, and you know, they should be. They play in the worst division uh, in football. They were a third-place finisher last year. So among the contenders, they were below where all these other contenders were last year. So their strength of schedule from the start was less. And, uh, you know, they, they've built themselves a cushion here. And, but, you know, look, I, I think they're, I think you can make an argument for four or five teams in the NFC right now. And when you actually break it down, I think you can also argue that the Cowboys are 
as complete or the most complete team of any of them at the moment. And that's before they get Randy Gregory and Demarcus Lawrence back. And that should happen next month. All right. So that leads me to, that leads me to one question here, guys. In, I, I do think, Kevin, I, I just want to go back and very quickly touch on this. You, you mentioned the Cowboys game with the Chiefs being a playoff primer. And, and I think in, in a lot of regards, the Cowboys games with the Chiefs, at least offense, or at least where the defense is concerned, it, it's not a playoff primer. It's a number one seed primer because they're going to face Arizona very, very possibly with the likelihood of number one seed on the line in the last, in the second to last week of the season. Um, and I would, I would submit to you that I feel like the Cardinals offense and, and the, the Chiefs offense have a lot of things in common. Um, and, and so I think if you can come out and, and have whatever experience you have against that Mahomes offense, it's going to take you. It's going to put you in a better position to win that Arizona game that you're going to have to win. Um, but the question I have for both of you guys on this is: All right, so if this is the most complete team, or if it's in the running for the most complete team, what are the Cowboys still lacking to, from from your perspective to give you a definitive answer that this is the best team in the NFC? Well, to me, there's no question it's the defense. I think that the offense had a terrible game against Denver. A lot of that was a, a, can be attributed to Dak's mechanics, things he worked out, uh, got going better. I mean, I, when I look down the field uh, Sunday and you watch Michael Gallup inserted in that group, you know, it's like it's an embarrassment of riches for them at, at receiver, right? Uh, uh, you know, the, the Gallup comes back and he's and he there were a couple of passes he should have had Dak off a little bit on his time, but you know, it's, it, he hasn't uh, been able to work with him as much this year. And so it, that, that was probably taking a little bit of time, but he makes the toe tap catch down there on the sideline on fourth down, which is kind of a specialty of his. He just, it, you know, they, they just got so much going for him on offense. Uh, and, and, and of course, a lot of this will have to do with how Tyron Smith does coming back. I think that'll be a real key for the offense. Terrence Steele played much better last week in his stead, but I don't know that, that that's a certainly not a long-term answer. Uh, so we'll have to see how that works out going forward. But on defense, you know, they still have to be able to stop the run. The Falcons were not a test on that. You know, they, they, they don't run the ball well. So they have still have to prove they can stop the run. Uh, they To me, they still have to prove that we can beat a team when we're not coming up with two and three interceptions in a game. You know, we have to beat a team when we're just going to stop somebody. Uh, and, they have not really been able to do that this year. So that's that's the key for me is is making sure. And, and that will help a lot when Tank Lawrence comes back because he is a, a really terrific all-round defensive end. He's their best run stopper when he's available. So that I think that should help them quite a bit. David? To me, it's, it's just seeing them more. You know, you hear Mike McCarthy talk about situational football. I just want to see – how they handle different situations over the course of the season. I don't think there is a glaring deficiency at the moment on either side of the ball at any position. I really don't. I do agree. I think run defense against a team that's built to sustain the run and pound them if they get a lead can be problematic for them. Uh, but I just don't think a lot of teams are built to do that uh, anymore either. And so, you know, this team has – has has won games where defensively they didn't force turnovers in Minnesota with a backup quarterback. Uh, so you saw them play through that. You've seen them play through the loss of, of Tyron Smith and adapt. You've seen them lose key players and adapt their offenses or defensive scheme. 
you've seen them adapt within games to what the opponents are throwing at them rather than waiting until the second half and a delayed reaction. Uh, they're very proactive in their changes now, in my mind, versus reactive. Uh, I, I think this is the best coaching staff, complete coaching staff they've had in a while. I, I think it's the most depth they've had on both sides of the ball for a while. And, and I think this offense that the, the core of the offense has been together long enough that they're really at peak form right now. And I'm not sure there's a better offense in the NFL or a more complete offense when everyone is healthy out there. So to me, it is just seeing them, what do you do on the road in a close game against Kansas City, a team that's been to the Super Bowl the last two years? What do you do in New Orleans when you're going into the fourth quarter and you suddenly have to change something in order to respond and win a game? That's really kind of what I'm looking for to, to get a gauge on on whether or not they're the number one seed. I think those are all I think those are all great points. Kevin, the one thing I disagree with you on though is I do think teams that have great turnover margins are that that is how you win games. I, I think that yeah, you need to be able to stop some teams, as you said, but I think teams that create turnovers, uh, there's so much more involved in what that does for, for you. And, and I think that's one thing that has been remarkably different about this Cowboys team than in the past. I, I can just say, from my perspective, watching this team play has been a more enjoyable experience, like not having anything invested one way or another. They've just been a more enjoyable team to watch than I can remember in a long, long time on both sides of the ball. Well, of course, Evan, you're wrong for disagreeing with me, uh, but that's okay. Uh, I will just say quickly, this is taking a David Moore attack here. Uh, quickly, quickly, let's make this session, let's let's make this segment longer, quickly. Yeah, is that the, the thing about, for me, about turnovers is that they're fluky, uh, is that a lot of interceptions, the guy just throws the ball right to you, you know. Do we remember Larry Brown in the Super Bowl? Uh, you know, he's a Super Bowl MVP on balls that were thrown right into his stomach. So, I think that is one issue. And turnover margin is different from turnovers. Turnover margin means you're not you're not turning the ball over. So yes, I do believe in that. I do believe you have to win the turnover margin battle. But anyway, uh, and I, I do think that's a thing to be to look at. No, David. No. And my, and my 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 quick addendum to that is, Evan. I will say I will say that I think that this Cowboys team is playing with a joy and an attitude that is reminiscent to what you saw in 2016 when Ezekiel Elliott and Dak Prescott came into the team. The difference is this offense has now been together for those five years and is operating at a different level than it was back then. All right. go, go ahead, Kevin. Go to the next segment. Come Thank on, we're you, driving. David. Thank you, David. Mr. Last Word. Uh, so, <laughs> yeah, at any rate, we're, we're going to move on from our Cowboys segment to, to the colleges. Uh, a lot of moves going on here in college football uh, still in the state of Texas uh, and the potential moves. Uh, you know, TCU still has an opening. Tech filled its opening with Joey McGuire, surprising hire, at least not from my standpoint, uh, why fire a guy? in the middle of the season to hire Joey McGuire, who was not, who was still going to be there. He could have still been there, I think on September 1st, but at any rate, uh, tech made its move. TCU is still waiting to make a move. Uh, Sonny Dykes is up for that job. I'm hearing things that indicate that he is the number one target and maybe even uh, really on the verge of, of making that move. That would be shocking for SMU. Uh, I think it's also indicative, though, of the difference between the two programs, uh, where they sit in the conferences mostly, but also where they sit in their markets. 
TCU is Fort Worth's team. SMU is not Dallas's team. Uh, those are the two big differences right there. But Kevin, uh, we, Kevin market-wise, TCU, SMU may not be Dallas's team. But if you own Dallas in terms of recruiting, are you not recruiting from a better database, a better kind of uh, recruiting base than if you if you've got Fort Worth? Does that matter? If you own it, yeah. But that's the problem. Does, does SMU own it? Uh, I, I don't know. I think he's made significant inroads here. He has made significant strides. Uh, Rashawn Samples, uh, his uh, chief recruiter in Dallas, has made that possible. And and I I don't think that goes away when he goes to TCU. I mean, it's it's not very far away to go. You don't have to stay if you're from Dallas and you're going to go play college football in Fort Worth. That's that's not <laughs> that's not a far uh, uh, trek. So. The, the difference, Evan, is that you get – and I got into this with some SMU fans a few weeks ago. Uh, neither – both are very small alumni bases. Neither one packs them in for the crowds. But SMU's crowds, they're, they're up and they're better than they have been. And they, they're kind of building something. I give them all credit for that. But I'm watching that, that, that South Florida game the other day, and they pan up into the, uh, to the stands – across from the press box, and there's about 20 people sitting over there. No, the, you're, the, the, you're the bringing in still recruits, the boulevard, right? It's still the boulevard, right? Well, absolutely. And, and now, listen, th- there's a lot of that still at TCU as well. Uh, there's no question about that. But they do have bigger crowds over there. You do. It, it is easier to sell that as that this team means something to Fort Worth. Uh, you know, I think that they're, they're making inroads at SMU. There's no question about that. If Sonny decides to make this move, there are a lot of issues that would be the reason for it, and and I'm sure even some that we don't know. Uh, I, I think that, for one thing, Sonny likes living in Texas. He wanted to come back here from Cal. Uh, and so that would be a factor if he decides to move someplace else. More money, uh, potentially. Uh, also, uh, the fact that, that that's, you know, however you want to argue that, uh, TCU is Fort Worth's team. And you're going to have bigger crowds over there than you're getting at SMU. And maybe SMU could promise that all at once, but it still hasn't quite delivered on that. So uh, we've got bigger we've got bigger coaches to fry. But I'll just leave it with this: I'm just still not sure long term how stable TCU and the Big Twelve is. Um, and, and I'm not so sure that at this point in time, I don't feel that the American might be a more stable conference than what will be left of the big 12. That all remains to be seen, but you can't, you can't say that. You can't say that, Evan, not, not the AAC is, is drifting towards conference USA when what it was. I mean, it's, it's not, it's not a good league. It's not going to be a good, no, I don't, I think there's no question. The big 12 is not as strong as it was, but you still got Oklahoma state. You, you still got Baylor playing, playing well in football and basketball. Uh, you, you, it's still a much better basketball league even than that. I, I you know, I, and not that that really matters as much, obviously, as football. But there are better teams in football, uh, and especially with BYU and Cincinnati coming in, uh, than what the American has left. So, no, no question to me that the Big Twelve will still be better, not nearly as good as it was without Texas and Oklahoma. Uh, but or I don't know how much I can make that argument now with the way Texas is playing. Uh, but anyway, speaking of. Speaking of, uh, Steve Sarkeesian now on a five-game losing streak, first time in uh, Texas since 1956. That's That was Ed Price's last year. They hired a 32-year-old guy from Washington named Daryl Royal the next year, and that kind of worked out pretty well for them. 
five-game losing streak, including this last loss, uh, one of the worst losses in the last 50 years at uh, Texas, 57 to 56 to Kansas. The second time they've lost to Kansas uh, recently, uh, just unbelievable. And losing that way to Kansas at home, even worse, uh, just a miserable performance by these Longhorns. I don't think there's any question at this point there are real problems within the team. Uh, You've had a a player, Joshua Moore, who got into an argument uh, with Sarkeesian at practice, and then he entered the transfer portal after that. Uh, You had a viral video of an assistant coach going off on the players on the team bus after the game. Uh, A lot of controversy about that video. Uh, Is this terrible that a coach would – uh, talk to these players that way. Uh, you know, uh, I have I have a kind of mixed emotions about all of that. You know, I don't think we you don't see many chemistry professors uh, going off on their students in college campuses. But the other side of that is is that uh, um, you know, <laughs> the part of the problem at Texas is you know you got guys on the bus laughing after a loss uh, to Kansas. That's just kind of unfathomable to me. Uh, and I'm sure it was to a lot of the players as well. So there's a really great question of, about how uh, Sarkeesian is going to be able to pull this back. You know, they've got a lot of issues uh, uh, going forward. It, it, it depends on how many players they lose in the transfer portal. I'm sure there will be some. There always is anytime you have a, a, a changeover with a new coach and more demands perhaps than there was from the previous coach. But, you know, this was a team that uh, uh, the, its losses last year were pretty minimal. Uh, Tom Herman seemed to have everything pointing the right direction. He was probably a victim more of the Eyes of Texas controversy than he was of anything else. Uh, and and then he's out. Well, the team's in much worse shape right now than it was at any point last year, at least on the football field. Uh, so I don't know that that has constituted any kind of uh, upgrade. Uh, certainly, certainly doesn't seem like it. And, and, you know, going into the whole situation, I didn't think that Steve Sarkeesian was such a great hire. You know, it's not like he, he killed it, uh, at USC in Washington when he was at those places and, uh, had not been a head coach for a while. People really liked the fact that he was, you know, a, a offensive coordinator at Alabama under Nick Saban. Well, Tom, uh, Herman was also the offensive coordinator. Uh, you know, under Urban Meyer at Ohio State, how'd that work out for him? So I, I think there are a lot of issues here going forward for Texas, and I'm not sure how they, they uh, frankly, how they rectify them. I would just like to revisit the boldest statement ever made on this podcast um, after the Oklahoma game in which I immediately said that the Sarkeesian era is doomed at Texas. Um, not to remind <laughs> anything of anybody that anybody's ever said here, Um but I, I will say this. I, I, I do revisit this. Yeah, these are not his players. There's there's going to be some turbulence in year one. But this is this is bordering on catastrophic for Texas, um, especially in this whole kind of era of uh, transition, I guess, maybe to the SEC. I don't know how long, a, how, how actual long that, that period will take, um, if it will happen in 2025 or earlier than that. But uh, they're putting themselves in a really big hole here. And, and, and I do think it is, it, it's getting to the point where you've got to consider some, some really significant thoughts about the future. And I don't know, Kevin, how you could go into this whole diatribe about coaching issues 
and not mention the pole assassin or the monkey. <laughs> yeah, we had the monkey, and one of the assistants had a pet monkey that bit a kid at Halloween. So I mean, holy cow! Uh, With his, it was, it's not his monkey; it's his stripper girlfriend's, the pole assassin's monkey. Yeah, clarification, yeah. please. I think context is important here, Kevin. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah, well, you know, they probably weren't checking to see how, what kind of pets they had here. Well, you know, and, and speaking of coaching, you know, we have the one last uh, one I want to visit before we get out of our college segment is the fact that, uh, that Jimbo Fisher's name continues to be up for the LSU job. And that's because, from what I understand, that uh, sports agents across the land believe that Scott Woodward has Jimbo still as his number one target. Uh and Jimbo insists that he's not. And I have to tell you, I think I believe him. He is doing a phenomenal job in recruiting. He's already got the number one defensive or the number one recruit in the nation committed. Walter Nolan, this defensive tackle. Uh, he's he's signing. He's got a commitment from a, uh, a top recruit. And as he put it, why would I recruit all these guys for Texas A&M and then leave and go to LSU and have to compete against all these players? Uh, plus, you consider the fact that there's not nearly the politics at A&M that there is at LSU, which is kind of a Texas version uh, of, of the same kind of thing. So uh, I do believe uh, Jimbo when he says he is staying uh, at A&M. And I will say that for Texas, however this works out going forward with Steve Sarkeesian, and I don't think it's going to work out, uh, but in a couple of years when they're ready to uh, eject a coach again and find another one, they got to go out and get themselves a Jimbo Fisher. They do not need to be hiring another guy who's been an offensive coordinator or somebody that they're gambling on. They, they are big enough and can pay enough that they got to do that. All right. Well, this isn't about going for offensive expertise at Texas. They need to build a culture. And to me, that's where these final few games are critical in UT. Uh, you know you're not going anywhere. You just Now you've just lost your best player, too, to injury uh, in addition to all the other in. Uh, issues you're talking about. Sarkeesian needs to show at UT what he's about in these final few games going into the recruiting season, if he's about anything at all. And it's going to be very difficult to establish that, but you still have some time here to do that. But right now you can just say he is a, a he, he's an offensive mind who can't establish or run a program. Yeah, well, so yep. we'll, we'll see what Texas does going forward. That brings us to uh, our uh, last little potpourri segment. We're going to jam together the, the Mavericks and the Rangers. Let's talk about the Mavericks first. Uh, they had a big win over Denver uh, on uh, Monday night, and that came at the expense possibly of Luka Doncic, who limped off and really kind of hopped off uh, the game after getting his ankle rolled up uh, late in that game. So, uh, that obviously could be catastrophic if it turns out to be anything more than maybe he misses uh, two or three games. Uh, if that's all it is, and that's then that's not a problem. Uh, I will say that it was very encouraging to see Chris Stapps Porzingis come back with another strong game. Uh, he's been playing pretty well since coming back from that, sitting out uh, a few games with that lower back tightness. He's going to need to do that uh, if the if the Mavericks are going to make any inroads here in this season. In the, in the West, and, it's, and if there's going to be anything more than a one-and-done in the playoffs. Yeah, I think, um, you know, the, the thing that in monitoring this Mavericks team early in the season, you kept hearing, oh, okay, well, yeah, their record's good, but they're just beating bad teams. They're beating the teams. They, but then it's like, well, you're beating the teams you should beat, which they didn't do last year. So isn't that a sign of progress? 
And I think everyone is waiting to like, well, let's let's see them start to beat good teams because when they went up against uh, the Chicago's or the Miami's, they were losing those games pretty handily, right? Well, Denver is a really good team. Now it's on the second night of a back-to-back, and that certainly makes a difference. Uh, but th- they beat a very good Denver team. That was their best win of the year. And Luka Doncic gets hurt making a defensive play. Uh, now, and, and that's a part of his game that you need to see expand. Um, you, you know, you want to see the, the a big a big part of the issue last year was him and uh, Porzingis didn't get to work together enough, and so this is going to sound counterintuitive. But if Doncic is going to miss, I think they're they're on a four game road trip now, about to start in Phoenix, uh, leaving on Tuesday. Um, but you know, if if Doncic is out here for three or four games, and Porzingis can establish himself even a little bit more, and then you know Doncic comes back and they work this out, that can really be good for them in the long run. Uh, those two need to play together as much as possible. But now that Porzingis is playing good and asserting himself, I, I don't think it would hurt to assert himself a little bit more into his importance to this team. And then they work it out over the, the remainder of the season. So we'll see how it unfolds. But really for this early in the season, I, I think there are some encouraging signs about their development. Yeah, you know, I kind of obviously I'm all over the map on this team. I I watched them in these first few games, and uh, and you know they they struggled so much offensively. And after they lost the game to the Bulls, and you saw that they added you know Lonzo Ball and and Demar Derozan, and and how well Demar Derozan has played, I don't think anybody expected to see that. He's averaging 26 points a game. Yeah, he's been outstanding. Yeah, yeah he's just been terrific. And, and and you know nobody wants a Demar Derozan anymore because he doesn't play much defense, and he's a mid range shooter. You know, he had no three point shot whatsoever. But he's improved a little bit on that, and I think that he's shown that in the right offense with the guy, right guys around him, that he's very effective, you know. And so that's and that's what they've been able to to do in Chicago. The the Mavericks, the you know the two guys that are of any substance that they added, you know, uh, Sterling Brown and uh, uh, Reggie Bullock, uh, just haven't done much. You know, Reggie's uh, no, shooting has been very sporadic. Uh, and if he's not going to add anymore, that's going to be a real problem. The problem for me with the Mavericks is that, you know, that you've got in your starting lineup as is, you, you've got one too many guys uh, like, uh, you know, like Finney Smith and uh, and uh, Dwight Powell. You know, you can have one of those guys in the starting lineup, not both, uh, because they're not – neither one is giving you enough on both ends of the floor. So – uh, I, I'm interested to see, you know, it, because of that makeup and because of what they weren't able to add to that team, it's just imperative that uh, Porzingis becomes the player that they thought he was going to be when they made the big deal with the Knicks. Uh, he looked so aggressive in that game against the Spurs the other night, uh, and you just don't see that enough from him. And that was the that was the term that that Jason Kidd used afterwards was he was aggressive, and 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 I think that's what. I think I see that, you know, and we saw that in, in the comments after uh, the, the game, uh, the, the win against Denver was kid kind of kind of uh, poking the bear a little bit with, with his players saying, hey, you see how they were officiating this game in the first half? You see how the Nuggets were more aggressive than we were? What, what are we doing? You know, and, and, you know, the players responded to that. They talked about how in the second half, yeah, we're going to scratch and claw, too. We're, we're going to do the same thing that, that the Nuggets are doing in the first half. And these are the things you haven't seen from the Mavericks in quite a while. Uh, a, a team that wants to play some defense, a team that's going to be more aggressive and more physical 
and and that would be a welcome addition to this team's repertoire. So is that Kevin, you, guys just gonna, you agree? You're just going to sit out on me on this now or what? Me? Me? I'm, I'm not yeah. Mr. Maverick. I was leaving this to you two. I was all paying bills for crying out loud. Oh, my gosh. That's terrible. All right, so, Evan, since you didn't get to talk about the Mavericks, all right, we're going to give you some time now to talk about the Rangers. Go. What, what, what have you got? <laughs> you have 90 seconds. Go. Yeah. Uh, well, what I have discovered is that there are many really good free agents out there and that the Rangers are interested in many of these free agents. Um, I, 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 what I do think is as we record this today, uh, we've seen two pitchers that had qualifying offers come off the board already in Eduardo Rodriguez going to Detroit, uh, which is making noise that it's going to spend a significant amount of money this offseason and Noah Syndergaard of Mansfield going to the, the LA Angels on a one-year deal. Um, both those both those picks would require the, the teams that signed them to give up draft pick compensation, and it was thought that the guys that had qualifying offers would probably not get a lot of activity in November as we waited to see what would be the new rules under the CBA. So what it makes me feel like is that all the shortstops that are on the market with the exception of Javier Baez, have qualifying offers attached to them. And I think it may change the dynamic some that many of these guys may, may start to get offers here before December 1st. Uh, and I think the Rangers are going to be as aggressive as any team on, on these shortstops. Um, uh, and right now, I think it still comes down to, to this very, very difficult equation to work through is... Trevor Story for five years and $25 or $26 million, a better option than Carlos Correa or or Corey Seager at 10 years and double that amount of money. Not double the amount of money. I'm sorry, double the uh, the total amount of dollars, you know. Yeah. Um, so yeah. I, it, it, uh, it, it's, it's, a, it, it's a difficult choice to work through, and I think the Rangers have to pursue parallel paths there. I, I, I'm still not certain that this team has absolutely determined what their number one priority would be among the shortstops, uh, whether it would be Seager, Story, or Correa. Um, and I don't rule out Semyon. I, I could see a situation in which the Rangers pursue Semyon as a second baseman in addition to one of these shortstops and really give themselves a superstar middle of the infield. That's asking a lot, but if there's one thing that the, the Rangers have made clear, it's that they've got money. Are they attractive enough to guys? I don't know, but they've got money. My one concern about this and, and all of these shortstops is is story because, you know, the swing and miss has become more of an issue in his game. And to me, that is the Rangers as a whole is swing and miss. And if you're going to go out and pay for pay and pay big for somebody to come in, you want them to be fixing something that is a problem, not adding to it. Uh, so uh, that that is a that's the issue for me. That's a good point. Um, but I also will say you're talking about two in, in Seeger and, uh, and Correa, you're talking about two guys that are looking at $300 million contracts. I've gone back and I've looked at every guy who signed a $300 million contract. And offensively, these guys do not have the numbers that stack up with what other players had achieved when they signed their three, their 240 or, or bigger 
contracts. And I'm going to write something about that this week, but I I do think it is something the Rangers also need to be aware of. I think your point, though, is great, that the swing and miss um, is going to be a factor in every free agent decision that the Rangers make. But at some point in time, you're also going to have the sliding scale. Do you go and try and fix two, two areas a little bit more marginally, or do you try and fix one area that you feel like you can fix in a more significant manner? And that's always... That's always the issue that teams with money run into. That's going to do it for our uh, podcast this week. Thanks for tuning in. We appreciate you doing that. Always remember that we're here for you anytime.